is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and everything in between, including your stories. And we'd love to hear them. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org, and we'll put them up on the air. You are the hour in Our American Stories. And it's time now for our Rule of Law series, where we tell stories about what this Rule of Law thing is and what happens when it's absent or present in our lives. Today's edition comes from a Wisconsin father named Michael Bell. I got a phone call at 2 a.m. on November 9, 2004. It was my oldest daughter, and she said, Dad, you need to come to the hospital right away. Michael's been shot. When I arrived, I saw that the district attorney was huddled with about five police officers. The last time I saw my son alive was on a gurney. His head was wrapped in a big towel and blood was coming out of it. I had learned that an officer had put a gun directly to Michael's right temple. The gun misfired and then did it again, and this time he shot him. From the beginning, I cautioned patience, though Michael's mother and sister were in uproar. But as an Air Force officer and a pilot, I knew the way that safety investigations are conducted. And I was thinking that this was going to be conducted the same way, yet within 48 hours I got the message. The police had cleared themselves of all wrongdoing. In 48 hours, they hadn't even taken statements from several witnesses. Crime lab reports showed that my son's DNA or fingerprints were not in any gun or holster even though some of the police involved in Michael's shooting had claimed that Michael had grabbed his gun. The officer who killed my son, his name was Albert Gonzalez. He is not only still on the force at 10 years later, he is a licensed um, concealed gun instructor down in the state of Illinois. The Chicago Tribune uh, did an investigative story uh, and he was listed as one of the multiple instructors with documented histories of making questionable decisions about when to use force. From the beginning, um, I allowed the investigation to proceed. I didn't know it was a sham until many of the facts were discovered. But before long, I realized the cover-up was underway. I hadn't understood at first how closely related the DA and the police were. During his election campaign for judge, the DA had been endorsed in writing by every police agency in our county. Now he was investigating them and it was a clear conflict of interest. I wanted to uncover the truth and so our family hired a private investigator who ended up teaming with a retired police detective to launch their own investigation and they, they discovered that the officer who thought his gun was being grabbed in fact had caught his gun on a broken car mirror. The emergency medical technicians who arrived later found the officers fighting with each other over what had happened, and we ended up filing a 1,100-page report detailing Michael's killing with the FBI and the U.S. Attorney. It took us six years to get a wrongful death lawsuit settled, and our family received $1.75 million. I wasn't satisfied. By a long shot, I used my entire portion of that money and much more of my own to continue a campaign for more police accountability. I wanted to change things for everyone else so no one else would have to go through what our family did. And we did our research. In 129 years since police and fire commissions were created in the state of Wisconsin, we could not find one 
single ruling by a police department, an inquest, or a police commission that a shooting by a police officer was found unjustified. There was one shooting we found in 2005 that was ruled justified by the department and an inquest jury, but additional evidence provided by citizens caused the DA to charge the officer. The city of Milwaukee settled with a confidentiality agreement in that particular case and the facts of that remain sealed and the officer involved and eventually committed suicide. So you can see if there's a problem. To me, the problem over the decades, in other words, was a near total lack of accountability for wrongdoing. If police on duty believe they can get away with almost anything, they will act accordingly. As a military pilot, I knew that if law professionals investigated police-related deaths like, say, the National Transportation Safety Board investigated aviation mishaps, that police-related deaths would be at an all-time low. And so, together with a number of other families in Wisconsin, I launched a campaign in Wisconsin legislation calling for a new law that would require outside review of all deaths in police custody. I contacted everybody. I mean, in the beginning, I contacted the governor's office, the attorney general's office, and the U.S. attorney for Wisconsin. Didn't even bother to return my calls or, or letters. And then I went further. I contacted Oprah, every Associated Press Bureau in the nation, every national magazine, and every news agency, and I didn't hear a word. But I reached out to Frank Serpico, the famous uh, retired New York police detective, and he helped. He had his own experience with taking on police corruption. I set up billboards and a website. I took out newspaper ads, including national ads in the New York Times and USA Today, and Frank Serpico allowed me to use his endorsement. When police take a life, should they investigate themselves? That's what the ad read. Finally, we began to get some movement. I was helped by a friendly Republican legislator, his name was Gary Byes, and a Democratic Assemblyman, uh, her name was Chris Taylor. We passed a law that made Wisconsin the first state in the nation to mandate at a legislative level that police-related deaths be reviewed by an outside agency. I need you to know that I'm not anti-cop, and I'm finding that many police want change as well. It was the good officers in the state of Wisconsin that supported our bill from the inside and it was endorsed by five police unions. And great job on that to uh, Alex and Robbie, and thanks so much to Michael Bell Sr. And condolences for your loss, first of all. I mean, what a thing to learn. And my goodness, we, we found out that the gun got caught in a mirror. Okay, so he thought someone was pulling at the gun, and he found out that's what happened. Why not just say that? It's okay, you made a mistake. You didn't do it on purpose. It's the cover-up that ruins everything, right? You didn't go out there to kill a kid, and you got to live with it. I mean, the cop who does this has to live with it his whole life an accident. But don't cover it up. The family deserves to know the truth. Everyone does. And you knew the truth. It's a great story, and it's why rule of law matters in everyone's life. And that Wisconsin passed this rule, making all deaths at the hands of an officer reviewable by an outside party. I'm so proud of the people of Wisconsin and to Michael Bell Sr. Michael Bell Sr.'s story, his son's story. A great legislative story here on Our American Stories.
And we continue here with Our American Stories. And our next story is about a remarkable woman who played a crucial role in the settlement of the American West, Nancy Kelsey. When the lure of a new life on the farthest edge of the frontier beckoned to Ben Kelsey, Nancy was determined to be at her husband's side. Together they braved hunger, disaster, illness, betrayal, and death. Nancy Kelsey and her family would play a crucial role in California and American history, becoming the first wave of a great tide that would transform a nation. Roger McGrath is the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier, a U.S. Marine and former history professor at UCLA. Dr. McGrath has appeared on numerous History Channel documentaries, and he's a regular contributor here for us at Our American Stories. Here's Roger McGrath with the story of Nancy Kelsey. Nancy Kelsey was the first woman to cross overland to California. She did so carrying her baby daughter and an otherwise all-male party of pioneers that crossed the Great Basin and the Sierra Nevada Mountains with no maps or guides and walked barefoot into California in 1841, the first of a tide of immigrants that would sweep California into the United States. She also became known as the Betsy Ross of California for making the flag raised by the American rebels at Sonoma in 1846. She would give birth to 10 children and survive unimaginable hardships. She was a pioneer woman who was emblematic of the spirit, drive, and strength that animated Americans on the frontiers of the Old West. William and Sarah Roberts welcomed the birth of their daughter, Nancy, on August 1, 1823. Sarah is only 17 years old, but that is not unusual in the Scotch-Irish frontier settlements in Barron County, Kentucky. Nancy is born only 30 years after the first whites settled in Barron County, but her parents pick up in 1826 and move west to Jackson County, Missouri, in the far western part of that state. They settle among fellow pioneers from Kentucky. Nancy is reared on the family farm in Jackson County, and in 1838, 15-year-old Nancy marries 25-year-old Ben Kelsey, also a native of Barron County, Kentucky. Here's Cecilia Holland sharing anecdotes from her scrupulously researched book about Nancy Kelsey, an ordinary woman, the remarkable story of the first American woman in California. On October 25th, 1838, a girl of 15 rode eagerly through the blazing Missouri autumn to her wedding. She was a tall, pretty girl with long, dark hair and dark eyes and a wide, humorous mouth, her face shaped with the high cheekbones and strong jaw of her Scotch-Irish heritage. Her hands on the reins were strong and capable, and she rode astride. No pampered, sheltered city flower. She had been working since her childhood. She could milk a cow, skin a deer, plant a field, drive a team of oxen, load and shoot a rifle. She had made the dress she was wearing. The child of pioneers, bred to courage and risk, she had grown up in the wilderness, only a few miles from the great Missouri River that in 1838 was the border of the settled United States. Her name was Nancy Roberts, and Westering was in her blood. In marrying so young, and marrying whom she did, she was choosing a Westering life, 
one that would take her across the unmapped continent and change American history. Ben and Nancy have a daughter, Martha Ann, in 1839, and in 1841, a son who dies eight days after birth. During May 1841, the Kelseys joined some 60 other members of the Western Emigration Society to attempt the first pioneer crossing to California. The group will go down in history as the Bartleson Bidwell Party. Here's Nancy Leak. Nancy is a librarian who writes biographies of California pioneers for children. She's the author of Nancy Kelsey Comes Over the Mountain, the true story of the first American woman in California. This is 1841. People in Missouri, where they were living, were just beginning to hear about California. For a very few years, the Oregon Trail had been open and some people were going to Oregon, but nobody had yet gone to California. That was part of Mexico. But there was an American there, Dr. John Marsh. He wrote some letters that were published in newspapers extolling the wonders of California. And also, um, they heard from fur trappers who had been been to California. And they said, you know, it's, it's empty. There's hardly anybody there. Of course, they weren't counting the Native Americans. It was just empty land, free for the taking. Fertile soil, plenty of game, the hunting and fishing would be good, good weather, and above all, it had a healthy climate. And that was one of the problems people in Missouri had. Ben Kelsey had gotten ill a lot, probably malaria, a lot of chills and fevers, and people were always looking for a healthier climate. And Ben Kelsey had what his wife said was an adventurous disposition. In other words, he couldn't sit still, and he always wanted to be trying a new place. Although they are tough, hardy, and ornery, the members of the party know nothing about the Far West. Our ignorance of the route was complete, said John Bidwell. We knew that California lay west, and that was the extent of our knowledge. Another member of the party produces a map which shows two large rivers running westward from the Great Salt Lake to California. He suggests they take along tools for constructing boats so they can float downstream to California on the second half of their journey. When Nancy Kelsey is asked why she is willing to undertake a journey across half a continent to California, she replies, Where my husband goes, I go. I can better endure the hardships of the journey than the anxieties for an absent husband. The party of willing but woefully ignorant pioneers has the good fortune to fall in with a group of Jesuit missionaries led by the six foot eight inch Belgian born but American educated Father Pierre Jean de Smet. The black robes are being guided and schooled in frontier survival by one of the greatest of all American mountain men, Irish-born Tom Fitzpatrick, and several of his beaver-trapping partners. Here again is Cecilia Holland. East, in the settled United States, opinion was divided. Some people believed that hardy men could cross the continent, but mere women and children would never survive. It was tantamount to murder to take a woman on such a trip. That some missionary women made it was God's providence. In any case, the West was worth nothing. 
a desert littered with rocks infested with Indians. Other people claim that the trip was a lark, a mere matter of following the sun. No matter. They were leaving the United States, and somewhere out there California lay, and a new life. On May 18, 1841, the combined party leaves Sapling Grove, just south of present-day Kansas City. On June 1, the pioneers, mountain men and missionaries, crossed the Platte River in central Nebraska. And three weeks later, they reached Fort Laramie in Wyoming. By now a 20-year veteran of the High Plains and the Rockies, Fitzpatrick smooths the way for them, and the party is making excellent time. Here again is Nancy Leak. At first, I imagined this trip was kind of like a nice summer camping trip. Going along the Platte River, it's not crowded yet. Plenty of grass for their oxen and other animals. The weather's pretty good. They worry about Indians, but actually they don't have much trouble with Indians. There is one incident where there's a young man in the group named Nicholas Dawson, and he goes out hunting, and he meets up with a band of Cheyenne Indians who take everything he has, his rifle, his pistol, his knife, his clothing. They take everything, and he comes running back into camp, and Nancy thought this was hilarious because she says, how you would have laughed if you had seen him come running back into camp. He was entirely naked. They had taken everything. Well, Tom Fitzpatrick goes out and talks to the Indians, and he gets almost everything back. But ever after that, Nicholas Dawson was known as Cheyenne Dawson. Fitzpatrick guides them through South Pass during the middle of July, and by August 10, they reach Soda Springs in southeastern Idaho. And when we come back, we'll continue with the story of Nancy Kelsey, a remarkable woman who played a key role in the settlement of the West. Where my husband goes, I go, she said. And by the way, so many people thought it was tantamount to murder to take a woman, let alone her children, across that territory, through the deserts, and to another country at the time. And that's what California was. More Nancy Kelsey's story here on Our American Stories. Get more at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. we continue here with Our American Stories and the story of Nancy Kelsey. Let's pick up with Roger McGrath. They've been on the trail less than three months, made relatively rapid progress, and have not suffered great hardship. Except for the hailstorms, frosty night temperatures, a tornado, and a run-in with a herd of buffalo. Here again is Cecilia Holland, author of An Ordinary Woman, the remarkable story of the first American woman in California. One evening, as the settlers were camping by the water, Fitzpatrick came in among them in great excitement. A drove of buffalo was headed straight toward them. He got all the men out with their guns to build fires between the camp and the oncoming tide. Anne wrapped tight in her arms, Nancy and the other women bundled together sleepless through the den. 
while all night long the men fed the fires and shot off their guns, splitting the onrushing buffalo into two streams that thundered by on either side of the camp in a continuous, hours-long stampede. One cannot nowadays describe the rush and wildness of the thing, Bidwell said much later. In the morning, the camp was an island in a great sea of woolly brown bodies. The sky was a milky shroud of dust. The buffalo, trampling down into the river to drink, had fouled the water so that the people could not stomach it. Now a decision has to be made. Fitzpatrick is taking the missionaries to the Pacific Northwest. Here again is Nancy Leak, author of Nancy Kelsey Comes Over the Mountain, the true story of the first American woman in California. Tom Fitzpatrick, the trail guide, tells them, you do not want to attempt this. That territory has barely been explored. It's deserts, it's mountains, it's desolate. And so they they say, all right, we'll go to Oregon. It's too dangerous to go to California. But Ben Kelsey is not the kind of man to change his mind. He's going to California. And wherever he goes, his wife is going to go with him. That's the way she was. Wherever my husband goes, I go with him. 34 of the Bardison Bidwell party are determined to push on to California. Among them is the 18-year-old Nancy Kelsey and her now two babies. Martha Ann is in front of her and another one inside of her. Fitzpatrick draws the pioneers a map in the dirt, warning that if they miss Mary's River, known as the Humboldt River today, they will die long before reaching California. In mid-August, without guide or compass, they turn their horses and wagons south and follow the Bear River into Utah. They reach the Great Salt Lake on August 30. They skirt the northern shore of the lake and in the blazing desert to the west are forced to abandon their wagons and pack everything on horses and mules. Desperate now, they turned east and cut as straight across country as they could to find the Bear River again before they all died of thirst. The weaker animals straggled behind and they had to let them lag. The oxen drawing the two Kelsey wagons were trudging along so slow even Anne could outwalk them. The ground was white with salt and the wagon wheels crunched out trails as if in snow. Salt spangled the blades of grass that straggled up from the crusted ground. Anne cried for water and Nancy gave her the last in the canteen. She looked at Ben driving the oxen wondering when he had drunk last. Her own mouth was so dry it hurt and her lips cracked and she tasted wisps of blood. Carrying her baby in front of her, Nancy Kelsey rides horseback. California is hundreds of miles away. The party stumbles upon the headwaters of the Humboldt River and follows its course southwestward across Nevada. Piutes occasionally block their path, and when they do, Nancy holds her baby tightly in her arms. Everyone knew how Indians stole children. At one place, the Indians surrounded us, armed with bows and arrows, said Nancy. But my husband leveled his gun at the chief and made him order his Indians out of arrow range. The pioneers reached the sink of the Humboldt near present-day Lovelock early in October and then began a grueling trek across 40-mile desert to the Carson River. Along the way, they have to abandon their wagons. Their, their oxen are exhausted. 
and they're starting to eat their oxen. They've eaten most of the food they'd packed in the wagons, so there's not much point in pulling these wagons through the sand anymore. So they abandon the wagons, pack everything on their animals, continue along the Humboldt River, and then eventually the river sinks into the sand. And they are facing the Sierra Nevada Mountains. And that is just a wall of rock. And they're exhausted. They're starving. The whole party had considered turning around and going back to Fort Hall in Idaho. But that wasn't really an option. They knew they didn't have the food. They didn't have the supplies to make the trip back. They were going to have to go over the Sierra Nevada. As they begin their climb, John Bidwell looks up the eastern face of the Sierra Nevada and describes what he sees as naked mountains whose summits still retain the snows of perhaps a thousand years. The climb is slow and arduous, and breathing becomes difficult. There is no established trail to follow. Boulders and fallen trees block their path. Streams must be crossed and recrossed. On October 18, they reached Sonora Pass at an elevation of nearly 10,000 feet. Peaks on either side of the pass are another 2,000 feet higher. Fortunately, a heavy snowfall has not yet blanketed the Sierras. Now they have to pioneer a route down the steep and deep canyons on the western side of the Sierras into the San Joaquin Valley. They have little or no food. Their clothes, blankets, and diapers are in tatters, and their shoes have long worn away. She says, of course, we did not know where we were. The party scattered here to find the best way to descend the mountains. I was left with my babe alone, and as I sat there on my horse and listened to the sighing and moaning of the winds through the pines, it seemed the loneliest spot in the world. The descent was so abrupt that an Indian who had come to us on the mountain was allowed to lead my horse for part of the way. At one place, an old man of the party, his name was George Henshaw, became so exhausted that they had to threaten to shoot him before he would proceed. At another place, four pack animals fell over a bluff and we never tried to recover them. They had gone so far it was no use to think of it. We were then out of provisions as we had eaten all our cattle. At this point, uh, Nicholas Dawson says, Once I remember, when I was struggling along, trying to keep Monty, that's the name of his mule, trying to keep Monty from going over, I looked back and saw Mrs. Kelsey a little way behind me, with her child in her arms, barefooted and leading her horse, a sight I shall never forget. And he thought, well, if she can do it, I guess I can do it. And they kept going. Nancy recalled, We lived on roasted acorns for two days. My husband came very near dying with cramps, and it was suggested to leave him, but I said I would never do that. At one place I was so weak I could hardly stand. Well, Nancy Kelsey had a right to be exhausted. She was not only carrying her daughter, but she was also five months pregnant. And you've been listening to the story of Nancy Kelsey, and you've been listening to Roger McGrath tell it, and again, there's no finer storyteller in the country when it comes to stories about the American West and the American frontier. And there's no more important story to tell than Nancy Kelsey's, the first woman to move to California. And this is back before an interstate, back before anything. This is just, well, not long after the Lewis and Clark story. And by the way, we have told a whole lot of chapters in the Lewis and Clark journey. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. 
I think we have 40 running segments now uh, on the Lewis and Clark expedition. One of the great, great stories in American history. Stephen Ambrose, of course, chronicled it in Undaunted Courage. And I believe it was Ambrose's finest work. When we come back, this remarkable story of a woman pioneer, a woman adventurer, her name Nancy Kelsey. Her story continues here on Our American Story. For more, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for the podcast. And we continue here on Our American Stories with the story of Nancy Kelsey. And once again, here's McGrath. After treacherous descents, they reach the middle fork of the Stanislaus River and follow it down into the San Joaquin Valley. Seeing the coast ranges off to the west, they at first reckon California is still hundreds of miles farther away. They soon realize their mistaken notion. And on November 4, 1841, after a half year on the trail, the pioneers arrive at the Mount Diablo Ranch of an American settler, Dr. John Marsh. He regularly sent letters to the East urging Americans to settle in California, hoping a growing number of Americans would cause California to go the way of Texas. The six-month journey to Marsh's ranch makes Nancy Kelsey the first woman to cross overland to California from the United States. Throughout the journey, she was an inspiration to the men. Her cheerful nature and kind heart brought many a ray of sunshine through the clouds that gathered around the company of so many weary travelers, said fellow pioneer Joseph Childs. Here again is Nancy Leak. In many ways, she was just an ordinary pioneer woman, but those pioneer women were remarkable women. They could handle any situation and, and do it with, with good humor and a lot of grit. Joseph Childs, who was also a member of the Bidwell Bartleson party said, she bore the fatigues of the journey with so much heroism, patience and kindness that there still exists a warmth in every heart for the mother and her child. They were always forming silver linings with every dark cloud that assailed them. The Kelseys built a log cabin in the Napa Valley, a mile south of today's Calistoga. In February 1842, Nancy gives birth to Sarah Jane, who lives only one week before dying. Nancy has two little graves now, bookmarking each end of the journey. But as she has done before, Nancy Kelsey stoically endures. Meanwhile, Ben is making money hunting and trapping, and with the proceeds, buying cattle. During the spring of 1843, Ben decides to drive a hundred head of cattle north to American settlements in Oregon's Willamette Valley. He is joined by his brother Andy and three other men. Although pregnant, Nancy goes along. Five-year-old Martha Ann 
goes as well. At a crossing of the Sacramento River, while the men were busy driving the cattle, Indians raid the Kelsey's camp. Nancy yells for help, and Nicholas Dawson is the first to arrive. Because of his enormous size, Dawson is known as Bear. Bear came and shot one of the Indians within a few feet of me, said Nancy. Then he compelled the rest of them to help with the cattle crossing. Several weeks later, while camped near Mount Shasta, the Kelseys have Indian trouble again. During the night, Indians shoot several of the party's horses. And the next day, after a mile on the trail, there is a pitched battle. Nancy is in the midst of it, sitting on her horse and holding her daughter. There are several more Indian attacks before they reach the safety of the American settlements in the northern portion of the Willamette Valley. After selling their cattle and purchasing supplies at Fort Vancouver, they begin their return trip. En route, Nancy gives birth to another daughter, Margaret. Near Mount Shasta, they have another pitched battle with a large group of Indian warriors. Well, the arrows were flying into camp, said Nancy. I took one baby and hid my child in the brush. I returned and took the other child and hid that child also. The moon was shining brightly. Each time the men fired their guns, I heard an Indian fall into the river. As I hid the little ones, I wondered if I'd ever see daylight again. Think of it. We had only five men, and there were possibly a hundred Indians. Once back in the Napa Valley, the Kelseys prosper, again hunting, trapping, and grazing cattle and horses. In April 1846, Nancy gives birth to a son, Andrew. Two months later, on June 14, American settlers in Northern California revolt against Mexican rule by taking control of Sonoma and declaring establishment of the Bear Flag Republic. In Sonoma on that fateful day is Nancy Kelsey, holding Andrew in her arms. She watches as the American rebels raise the Bear Flag with its humped back grizzly and lone star. She has reason to be proud of the new flag. She made it using a three by five piece of cloth and a strip of red flannel from her petticoat. She will soon be called the Betsy Ross of California. Her husband, Ben, is a prominent bear flagger. He later gets into a dispute with John C. Fremont and gives him a tongue lashing when Fremont assumes command of the rebels. The Kelseys were known for their use of wicked and blasphemous language, said Nancy made a mule skinner blush. Here again is Cecilia Holland. On July 8th, the U.S. Navy seized Monterey without firing a shot. The Mexican dons fled. A day later, the bear flag came down that flagpole in Sonoma and the stars and stripes went up. On the whole, the bear showed more skill and foresight than one might expect. After all, the bears were ordinary people, not government-sanctioned heroes. Thanks to Ben and Nancy Kelsey, they founded California, and it became American. When Ben later falls sick with malaria, Nancy rides hell-bent for Sonoma in medicine. En route in an Indian, known locally as Chief Augustine, tries to lasso her and drag her off the horse. Although Nancy was without her pistol, she manages to escape and continue her wild ride to town. 
She returns with the medicine and tells Ben of the attempted horse theft in her narrow escape. Ben explodes with rage and bolts out of his sick bed. Now he is the one on the back of a galloping horse. He tracks down Chief Augustine and kills him with a pistol shot. Nancy continues to have children, Mary Ellen in 1848, Nancy Rose in 1851, William in 1854, Georgia Ann in 1859, and Samuel in 1861. When Samuel was born, she was 38. She'd been pregnant or nursing for more than 20 years, and for a good deal of it, she had been on the trail. The year Samuel was born, the family travels across the Southwest. We drifted into Texas, said Nancy, and were attacked by the Comanche. The men went hunting turkey, and a neighbor woman and myself were alone with our children when I discovered the Indians approaching our camp. I loaded the guns and suggested we hide. The oldest two girls ran and hid in the brush, and the 16-year-old looked out for himself by hiding alone. We and the smaller children hid in the cave. I heard the Indians above, but they did not discover us. After they pillaged the camp, they found the girls and succeeded in catching Mary Ellen. Poor girl. She was only 13, and even now I can hear her screams when they scalped her. The Comanches leave Mary Ellen for dead, but Nancy finds her still clinging to life. Nancy staunches the bleeding and stitches Mary Ellen's head wounds. The girl survives, but said Nancy... She was demented after that and died in Fresno five years later from the injuries she had received. In 1879, Nancy's son Samuel dies in an accident during the harvest. And in 1889, her husband, Ben, dies. But his legacy survives to this very day. His name is everywhere in California. Kelseyville on Clear Lake, the forgotten hamlet of Kelsey in El Dorado County, the Kelsey Trail, the Kelsey River, Kelsey Canyon, Kelsey Creek. After Ben's death, Nancy settles on a ranch in the Cuyama Valley, northeast of Santa Barbara. She raises cattle and chickens, administers herbal remedies to sick neighbors, delivers babies, and once rides a hundred miles in one 24-hour period on a mission of mercy. Nancy dies of skin cancer at the age of 73 in 1896 and is buried on a ranch in oak-studded Cottonwood Canyon. The native daughters of the Golden West marked her grave with a plaque. Each year, an equestrian group conducts a three-day, 150-mile ride through the Cuyama Valley. Perhaps not up to Nancy Kelsey's one-day effort, but a feat of endurance nonetheless. On the third day, the riders stop at the Pioneer's gravesite and pay tribute to the Betsy Ross of California and the first woman to cross the continent to what would become the Golden State. And thanks to Roger McGrath, as always. And he's the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier. What a terrific story. Nancy Kelsey's story. Ten children, a pioneer, well, the pioneer of pioneer women. I mean, she was one of the originals. Gets married at the age of 15 in 1838 and lives through a remarkable and dynamic century in American life and goes where her husband goes 
and sometimes goes where he isn't, as we heard towards the end of that story. Nancy Kelsey's story, a fundamental part of American history and the founding of the American West and the development of the American West here on Our American Stories. more at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And this is Our American Stories, and we chat with authors of all sorts, and well, all kinds of books here too. And today, we're joined by Sam Walker, the founding editor of the Wall Street Journal's sports section, and the author of The Captain Class, the hidden force that creates the world's greatest teams. And Sam, look, there's no better way to start a bar fight than to pick the greatest teams in the world. I mean, that's really hard. And also, you could have a bar fight Deciding what's a sport, what's a team. Talk about both of those things. And was it hard or was it easy? Because something's telling me it's pretty hard. I thought it would be easy. You know, I had those arguments at the bar and, you know, they always ended in just someone storming out because it was impossible to answer. And what I realized was that there's really no set criteria for how we define greatness. And no one had really done a rigorous study or tried to actually nail it down. So that was one of the toughest things I I had to do at the beginning was define greatness. And in the end, what I decided was that we have to be a little more specific about what a team is. A team has to have a certain number of people. It can't be two people. That's more of a partnership. I finally decided that five, five people was really the point at which group contributions and group chemistry was more important than individual performance. So basketball was really the smallest sport that I studied. I had another set of questions, which was, how do you define greatness? And, you know, for me, one of the problems is when people talk about great teams, there's no real set period of time that we apply to it. A lot of people talk about teams that were great in one season or had an incredible undefeated season. But what I really wanted to study, what I realized was important is teams that had sustained their dominance for a long time. Because I think any team can get lucky. They can win a championship in one season or two seasons. But Really, to rule out luck completely and to talk about culture and chemistry, then you really had to set the bar at four years. And let's talk about some competing theories that are out there, because the name of your book is The Captain Class. Some people think it's the coaches. Some people think it's the management. Some people think it's that superstar player or the team of players. What led you to this categorization and your choice to study the captains? I was completely shocked. I I had all of the same assumptions that I think everyone does. When I finally identified these teams, and that took years and years of work. I I went through 25,000 teams, the entire history of sports since the 1880s, all over the world, and I got down to 17 of them. And, you know, the first thing I looked at was talent, right? I thought talent would be the thing. You know, but I quickly realized that some of these teams, you know, they all were talented, but some of them had talent that was clearly average or even mediocre in some cases. So it wasn't that. The second thing I thought was coaching, you know, it's got to be coaching, but to my great surprise, 
there wasn't a pattern there. I'm not saying coaching isn't important, but some of these teams had more than one coach. You know, they changed coaches or, you know, some of them didn't even have coaches or had coaches who really didn't take an active role. And in fact, only one of them had a coach who was considered a great coach when their run of dominance began. So that wasn't the magic bullet I was looking for. I also looked at things like tactics. You know, I thought maybe they just had incredible, brilliant strategies that stood out above the rest. But again, you know, only a handful of them could say that. So that wasn't a pattern either. It didn't have anything to do with organization or even management at the higher levels. The only thing that they all had in common, and it was slap your forehead obvious. I mean, it was just so plain as day when I looked at it, was that these runs of greatness, these long streaks of dominance, they always corresponded almost precisely to the arrival and departure of one player. And that player, in every single case, was the leader of the team or the captain. And let's take a deep dive into your captain theory with the first captain I want to talk about and this great American sports franchise called the Boston Celtics. Bill Russell, who was he? Bill Russell is, in my mind, the greatest team leader in sports history. And what that team accomplished, I've never seen anything the likes of it. I mean, they won 11 NBA championships in 13 seasons, and people forget that. We talk about the the Bulls, Michael Jordan, and the, the Warriors today, and LeBron James. You know, but what we don't see is that incredible consistency. The whole notion of a team that has won 10 NBA titles and yet is still hungry to win an 11th is kind of incredible. And they pulled it off year after year. And now, again, that streak began and ended with Bill Russell. It started his rookie season when they won their first championship. And the Celtics had never won a title before, ever. And the year he retired was the last championship of the streak. And the, the following season, they, they didn't even make it to 500 and didn't make the playoffs. It took many more years for them to return to glory. So this was completely bracketed by Bill Russell. And I want to make the point very clearly that I'm not saying that all you need is a great captain to have a great team. I mean, you need a lot of things. A lot of things have to work. But to me, the captain is really like the verb in a sentence. You know, the adjectives, the nouns. You know, the punctuation, all these other things might be more interesting, more memorable, but without the verb, it's not a sentence. It doesn't work together. And that's kind of the role these captains played in bringing these elements together. And Russell was such a great example because Russell was absolutely on the court completely strange. He was a big man who did not score, which was very unusual for the day. And, you know, back then, defenders weren't supposed to leave their feet, you know, but he would fly through the air and block shots and, he played this ferocious brand of defense. It was completely relentless. You know, no one had ever seen anything like that, and his numbers were, were not startling, so people didn't understand it. And you know, off the court, too, he was strange. I mean, he didn't care about endorsements. He didn't sign autographs. He was very prickly with the press and, and didn't really seem to care much about the fans or being a role model or anything that we associate with with leadership. You know, in fact, he, he turned down the Hall of Fame you know, when he was inducted. He said he just didn't want any part of it. People thought he was an oddball, but really what they didn't understand was that all he cared about was the collective accomplishments of the team. And all his effort, everything went inside that team. And inside the team, his teammates loved him, you know, and everything about him. They understood him completely, and they would do anything for him. And on the court, you know, he understood that, you know, what the team didn't need was someone pouring in 
uh, baskets and getting in the highlight reel. They needed someone who would do all the unglamorous grunt work, every dirty job that needed to be done in order to help the team win. And that was his role. So he is just the epitome of great leadership. And he was misunderstood in his time. And, you know, I think only today we're really starting to understand the full dimensions of what he brought to that team. And anyone who was around during that day knows who Bill Russell was. By the way, he played at the University of San Francisco and took him straight to a college championship as well. When we come back, more with Sam Walker, author of The Captain Class. This is Our American Story. Our American Stories, and we're back with Sam Walker, the author of The Captain Class, the hidden force that creates the world's greatest teams. We were just talking about Bill Russell of the Boston Celtics, and Sam, you began the book with the words of this legendary captain, quote, my ego demands for myself the success of my team. Yeah, no, I love that. And it's such a great encapsulation of what you need to be if you want to be a great leader and, uh, you know, all the different ways that you need to think about your role and how much you need to, how hard you need to work and how much of yourself you need to just forget about. You you really need to kind of give yourself over completely to to the goals of of the group. And that's something that we're not trained to do. Business schools aren't teaching people to do that. Selflessness and self-sacrifice aren't generally words people use for most CEOs in America. We can, we can say that safely, Sam. Talk about the Coleman play, because one of the things about Bill Russell, and we're going to learn this more about some of these other captains, is this word called desire. And my goodness, anybody who played around Bill Russell understood what that word meant. So this is one of my favorite stories because I think it it shows one of the characteristics that we all kind of know is important, but that we don't really understand why it's important. And that is relentlessness. And Bill Russell was relentless. I mean, to an extreme, he would get sick before every game that he played meaningless games. He would throw up in the locker room. And in fact, if he didn't throw up, his teammates would say, Russ, you go throw up. Like, what's wrong with you? Uh, because he he cared so much. But the Coleman play was a perfect example of why this matters. Now, this happened in in his rookie season, and they made it to the NBA Finals in a Game 7 against the St. Louis Hawks. And this was one of the first Game 7s, and it was just a huge event with incredible pressure, and Russell was a rookie. Now, late in the game, uh, Boston had a one-point lead. It was about a minute left. And Boston got a rebound, and Russell charged down the court, and he tried to dunk the ball. Missed up his timing, he missed. And St. Louis got the rebound. And now St. Louis, a forward named Jack Coleman, had been sort of hanging back behind the play. And they quickly inbounded the ball to him at, at midcourt. Now he's at midcourt with the ball and a running start. Now Russell, who had missed that dunk, where was he? He was underneath his own basket, off the court, on the other side. He was about 96 feet from the basket, and Coleman was probably about 45 feet with a running start. 
But when Coleman came to the rim and to make a layup, now this is late in the game. They would have taken a lead. It might have been the end. This blur appeared behind him and swatted the ball away, and it was Russell. And he had somehow covered twice the distance that Coleman had in the same amount of time. I mean, nobody on uh, in that arena would have thought he had a chance, and he certainly must not have even known himself. But just that raw desire that he demonstrated over and over again in competition. The thing about it is that was consistent for him, and what we don't understand is that studies have shown that relentlessness is highly contagious. You know, if a group of people you know, that's doing something together thinks that one person in that group is giving 100% effort, a real maximum effort, all of them will raise their own performance. If you have someone in your midst like that who is relentless and committed to playing at all times at 100%, there are going to be serious marginal gains that you will you will see in your teamwork. And that's just not something we can quantify. So it's not something that we teach, but I think it's about time we started. We've all been around people who have that kind of drive and focus and what it does to our game. We raise our game. We raise the bar. And when those people aren't present, we don't even know where the bar is. Right, exactly. Yeah, no, it's funny because there are some emotions that are contagious inside a group and relentlessness is contagious always in a good way. Toughness is always contagious in a good way. If you show toughness and perseverance, others will too. And another one is emotional control, which is something all these leaders had. They had the ability to overcome really difficult personal circumstances and not just compete well, but compete at a higher level than ever. And Tom Brady of the Patriots is a great example of this. You know, a couple of seasons ago after this whole Deflategate situation, you know, he served a suspension, but he came back and played one of his greatest seasons. But even after they won the Super Bowl and this incredible comeback against the Atlanta Falcons, we find out that his mother had been undergoing chemotherapy, you know, and had been diagnosed with cancer that season. So he was going through that and he never said a word about it. No one knew about it you know, because he had the control to put that away and to play as hard as he could when he was playing and deal with it separately. And no doubt. And we're going to get to Brady in a little bit because it's such a fascinating chapter in your book. But let's talk about one more basketball player because I don't think he gets the credit he deserves. Tim Duncan of the San Antonio Spurs. Talk about Timmy Duncan. Who is he? He is a very unusual guy. He uh, was a great swimmer. I mean, really had uh, incredible talent. Could have maybe even been an Olympic uh, swimmer. But you know, the hurricane came in and destroyed the local pool. And about the same time, his mother passed away. And you know, he had uh, these hard knocks. And you know, he started picking up basketball and was very lightly recruited. In fact, Wake Forest was one of the only schools that really took him seriously. And he was a very skinny kid and just hadn't grown into his body. But, you know, he, he got there and really matured and became a really hot NBA prospect. But, you know, I don't think anyone really thought that, that he was going to become the, the star that he was or that he would develop his skills the way he did. But the thing that's fascinating about Tim, there's two things I think there's so much about him that is instructive for leaders. But I think that the most important thing really is the way he played. Now, he had the talent to dominate the NBA in terms of scoring, you know, or any of the famous, gaudiest statistics. But if you look at his totals, it's really amazing. Some, some years he was very prolific scorer. Some years it was not. His blocks and rebounds and other things were, were off the charts. He would change his position on the court and play different positions depending on the makeup of the team. It just showed that he had the same quality that Russell had, which is that he, 
he didn't care what his numbers were or what you thought of him or whether he got on the cover of a magazine. He only cared about the team winning and he would do whatever grunt work needed to be done and he would change his role to fit. But the thing about Tim Duncan that really everyone should study is the way he communicates. I was completely surprised when I looked at these captains because the first thing I thought the first way that you motivate a team is is with a speech. You give a big speech, right? You motivate them with words. And none of these captains gave speeches. I mean, they did not like to do it. Some of them purposely avoided it. And I did not understand this. I didn't understand how they communicated effectively with their teammates. Now, I went right to Duncan. Because if you've ever watched Tim Duncan give an interview, you know that he is not a charismatic guy. I mean, he sounds like he's getting a colonoscopy when he's answering questions. He just has no emotion. He's, he's monosyllabic, right? He doesn't come across as a charismatic person. So how does he communicate? Well, he talks a lot, but it's a different sort of communication. He's always working the room, talking individually to one person, one-on-one, with incredible intensity. He stares, uses his eye contact and gestures and touch to communicate very intensely with people. And he listens as much as he talks. He doesn't lecture, he listens. And he has these interactions all the time and he has them in the moment, especially when someone has done something wrong or needs uh, encouragement. That's when he springs into action. And what I realized is that the Spurs talk more than any team I've ever seen. I mean, they're always talking on the floor, on the bench, constant communication. And this creates an atmosphere where everyone feels like they can contribute, they feel heard. And they also feel like they have to account for themselves. And all the problems that team had were addressed in the moment. Nothing ever festered. This talkative style that they had allowed them to address problems in the moment to move past them. And that's why they were so good for so long. That's why they made the playoffs in 19 consecutive seasons with an incredible revolving cast of players and won five championships and had the greatest long-term winning percentage in NBA history. It was because that that whole climate that Duncan created, you know, allowed them to slot new people in, got them uh, talking and solving problems. So even though they didn't always have the best talent or certainly not the most money, they were the most dominant team of, of their era in the NBA. And we're talking to Sam Walker, author of The Captain Class. And what a terrific series of stats for Tim Duncan, wherever you might put him in the pantheon of greats. 19 consecutive playoffs, five championships, and the best winning percentage in National Basketball Association history. And by the way, if you like what we do here on Our American Story, speaking of, well, at least trying to raise the bar and lead the dialogue, maybe be the captain of the class in storytelling, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our free newsletter. Five best stories each week, you'll get them. Also, please send the link to a friend. If you like what you're hearing, please help us succeed in the market and in the marketplace of ideas and stories. We're working hard to get this out to the American people. There's a lot of screaming. There's a lot of yelling. There's a lot of hate. This show is always about, well, interesting, compelling, and good things. When we come back, Sam Walker, author of The Captain Class, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Sam Walker, author of The Captain Class. And for anybody out there who's listening, leading anything, and anyone who's a sports fan, but even if you're not, what a great discussion. We were just talking about Tim Duncan, probably the highest paid person to ever have written an academic psychology paper. Because in college, Sam, he co-authored one titled Blowhard Snobs and Narcissists, Interpersonal Reactions to Excessive Egotism. In the opening paragraph is the line, quote, simply put, we don't like egotistical people. So even as an undergrad, Tim Duncan got it. It just shows you the level of intelligence and emotional intelligence that these great leaders had. I mean, I don't know. I think I think that my sense with Duncan, I've never spoken to him about this. I know he's very proud of the paper, but I think that really was who he was and that that research that he did really explained to him that who he was as a leader, he didn't look like a leader that you would you would pick out of a crowd. I mean, his teammates always said if you walked into practice, you would never imagine that he was the leader of the team because he didn't, he wasn't the loudest voice in the room. He wasn't a huge presence, a, a charismatic person who barked out orders. He didn't do any of the things leaders are supposed to do. What I found in my book and what I hope is inspiring in it to people is that, you know, you may not think that you have leadership characteristics. You may think that there are things that you just aren't good at, but Really, the, the truth is that all of the things that these leaders did were really about behavior and the choices that they made in the team context every day. And behavior can be modeled and leadership can be, can be uh, improved. Choices can be better. And when you start to understand what leadership really involves and you start to separate out the myths, then um, you can see why someone like Tim Duncan may not be the guy on posters in every kid's bedroom, but he is by far the winningest and most effective leader of his generation. You know, his coach once said that Duncan didn't have an ounce of MTV in him. He even (laughs) agreed to be paid less than market value. Why did he do that? What was he thinking? I mean, his agent must have went, Timmy, what are you talking about? You want the maximum so I can get the maximum commission. What are you doing? You know, Tom Brady did the same thing with the Patriots, and he would restructure his contract every year so that they could have more salary cap room to sign other players. I mean, it's that's what you do. He's made more money, I'm sure, than he ever imagined he would make in his life, and, and as most of these players have. And it's not an affectation. I mean, he cared about the team. And the team's result. That's where all his satisfaction came from. And it came much more than his satisfaction from having more money in the bank or having, you know, yet another supercar in his garage. I mean, that stuff didn't matter. And he's an incredible person. And, you know, I have so much respect for him. And I I do think that there's a lot of appreciation for him. But he's often left out of the conversation when people talk about the greatest players of all time. And I just don't understand it. I don't understand this Hall of Fame mentality where, you know, we separate out an individual from his teammates and say this person deserves special praise. I don't understand how any – I think they knew that, that their – whatever they their accomplishments were, were all dependent on other people, that you can't really divide a team into its important parts and its less important parts. It's really all one unit. Indeed. I want to quote from the book. Because it's such a good quote, and it's something we all know and experience in any workplace. Quote, one of the great paradoxes of management is that the people who pursue leadership positions most ardently are often the wrong people for the job. You then cited a study of superstar CEOs and how, as they lift themselves up, they often lower others in the process. 
Tim Duncan and so many members of your captain class, they did the exact opposite. Talk about that. Well, my favorite example of this is a woman named Carla Overbeck. And I doubt that you immediately remember that name. She was the captain of that great 1999 U.S. women's soccer team that won the World Cup and you know, really dominated that sport for about five, six years. Just one of the best soccer teams of all time. And you remember Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy and Brandy Chastain, all the big stars of that team. But there's a reason you don't know Carla Overbeck, and it's because she did not care. She did not want you to know who she was. She had no interest in the spotlight whatsoever, any personal accolades. And she was not the best player on the team. She was a central defender, and you know, she never did anything flashy. She never scored. She you know, would, would pass the ball off the minute she got it to one of her teammates, and she, you know, she just played with this relentless pace. But what was amazing about her is that I think she understood what leadership is really about, and it's really about service. She was incredible with this because she did things I'd never seen before. When this team would go on a long road trip to Japan or Norway, they would get to their hotel and they'd be exhausted and they'd get a knock on the door and they'd open it up. And it was Carla Overbeck who was carrying their bags from the bus to their rooms for them. Now, this is the captain of the team doing this. I asked one of her former coaches about this. I said, how is this leadership? How does this help her be a leader? And he said, you know, she knew exactly what she was doing. Because Carla Overbeck would do these things on behalf of her teammates, and they understood that to her, all she cared about was the collective of the team. She did not care about herself. She would do anything for them. And this gave her a certain amount of currency, like a, a bank account, that she could spend when she needed to. And she would spend it on the field because the minute that someone messed up or was not focused, she would be all over them or encouraging them when they did something great. And it meant something. Everyone understood who she was and what she was all about. And it had great power when she did it in competition and made the team better. Let's talk about football now and, and two teams in particular. First, the 1970s Pittsburgh Steeler teams. Who is Jack Lambert and why did you include him in this book? Most folks think of Terry Bradshaw when they think of that powerhouse Steeler team. Why was Jack Lambert the guy you focused on? But really the heart and soul of that team was his defense. I mean, it was an extraordinary, historically great defense. And that was really the uh, the unit that drove that team forward. And just look at the moment that Jack Lambert showed up. I mean, the Steelers had never won a Super Bowl before he got there. And, uh, you know, never. And, and now they're, you know, they've won more, I think, than any other NFL team. And, you know, they are, uh, they are really a creation of Lambert's tenacious – style and his aggressive play and his relentlessness. Jack Lambert was a player who had an understanding of something that all these these elite captains knew to some extent, but I think he was probably the best example of it. They understood the power of nonverbal communication, of just gestures. They understood that there were moments where they needed to do something in full view of their teammates that would show their level of commitment and passion because that would transfer it to them and allow them to play harder. And Jack Lambert was famous, of course, for, uh, you know, he lost a couple teeth in high school playing pickup basketball and he uh, had a prosthetic denture that he wore in public, but he would take it off on the field. So they had a toothless, you know, mouth and he, and he would scare people. So that was part of it. But my favorite Jack Lambert story that I think shows you, uh, the genius of his leadership was that they were playing a, a game, I believe in 1976, and they had won the Super Bowl, but they started one and four. 
people had written them off, like it's over for the Steelers. And they had to win this game. They had to beat the Bengals. And he wound up playing a, probably the finest game of his career in terms of the number of tackles. He recovered fumbles. He basically accounted for most of his team's points single-handedly. So it was an incredible game. But now in the middle of this game, he had uh, came into the game, he had a cut on his hand, and he bandaged it up, and you know he went out there. And, of course, the bandages failed, and the blood starts spurting out. It was all over his uniform and his pants. I mean, it was a mess. I tracked down one of the trainers and I asked him, why didn't you know you just rewrap that bandage when he came off the field or change his uniform at halftime or something? And he said, you don't understand. He's like, Jack Lambert loved having blood on his uniform. I mean, he understood how powerful that message was and how, uh, how much harder it made his teammates play and how much it intimidated his opponents. And uh, he, he did that on purpose. And Jack Lambert did all kinds of things that might seem crazy or unhinged. But when you listen to him talk about it, I mean, he always says, look, these were calculated acts. These were things that I did, uh, you know, on purpose because I understood the power that they would have and I understood the effect they would have on the team. And, you know, that's one of the reasons that that team was so good and so consistently great uh, and won four Super Bowls in six years, which no team has ever done. And what great storytelling. And when we come back, the final segment with Sam Walker, more stories to come author of The Captain Class. This is Our American Stories. back with our final segment of our conversation with Sam Walker, the founding editor of the Wall Street Journal sports section and author of The Captain Class, the hidden force that creates the world's greatest teams. It's a terrific read. Go to Amazon.com and order it. You won't be disappointed. I had to read something to you, Sam, from quarterback John Elway. Of course, he played at Denver. And this was him talking about Jack Lambert. And by the way, he was a rookie. And here's what he wrote. Lambert had no teeth. He was slobbering all over himself, and I'm thinking, you can have your money back. Just get me out of here. Let me go be an accountant. I can't tell you how badly I wanted it out of there. And so you were talking about all of this nonverbal communication. My goodness, it didn't just fire up his team. It scared the heck out of the opponents. Talk about courage and how captains develop it. You know, a lot of it comes from emotional control. And, you know, we don't think of Jack Lambert as being someone who was uh, emotionally controlled. But like all of these great athletes, you know, he was not someone who got in trouble off the field. I mean, he was not someone who got in a lot of brawls. And none of these captains, they were usually very quiet. Off the field, Jack Lambert was really kind of an introverted, private person. I mean, he was a big reader. And, you know, on road trips, he would, he would often just sit in his room reading a book. I mean, he wasn't an outsized character. That aggression that he had on the field didn't translate to the rest of his life. And that was something I saw with all of these athletes. And, you know, I think it's a way of redefining courage because, you know, he poured everything into football and, and all of his aggression, all of his passion, everything. You know, he would, he would put it all out on the field. And, you know, when he wasn't there, he had this incredible ability to, to shut it off and to, 
kind of return to normal and, and to, to, to be a quieter person. And, you know, that's a form of courage that we don't really understand. It's an ability to control your emotions. You know, being able to do that, you know, it's not courage in the sense of, of you know, running up the hill in a, in, a, in a rain of bullets in some big military battle, but it's a different sort of courage that I think is very contagious because I think people see you dealing with your emotions that way, being able to control them, being able to target them toward objectives. And I think uh, it gives everyone a better understanding of, of how to operate in a team environment and, and what courage really is. Let's talk about Tom Brady at the University of Michigan, where he played as a collegian. No one could have imagined what would have been in store for him as an NFL player. He was a sixth-round draft pick and had trouble keeping his starting job in college. No, he lost it. I mean, he lost it. To Drew Henson, who was, you know, uh, supposed to be the next great, you know, quarterback, the second coming of, you know, Joe Montana. Yeah, no, he went through a lot. And, you know, um, the fact that he even got on the field was a fluke because he only got to play because of a serious injury to Drew Bledsoe. And it really shows you, you know, that, that it's very easy sometimes to not look inside someone. I mean, I think he had great talent, physical talent, and, you know, we'd seen many flashes of that at Michigan, but what was really lurking inside him was incredible elite leadership ability and, you know, also a great tactical mind and all those things that, you know, I think scouts too often dismiss. Brady was tough because, you know, Brady's accomplishments, I know everyone loves to talk about Brady and the uh, greatness of the Patriots, but, you know, until I believe this season when they made another Super Bowl and, and won eight, eight straight AFC championship games, you know, their record was very similar to the 49ers in that long stretch where they were very dominant. So same number of Super Bowls, roughly the same winning percentage. So I had a very hard time saying that either one of those teams was unique. So initially, for the hardcover, I didn't put the Patriots in. But later on, I, after they made that Super Bowl, I decided to put them in because I thought their record had clearly outpaced the 49ers. But the thing about Brady that stands out to me the most beyond his leadership qualities is his relationship with his coach. And that is something that is fascinating to me. And I said that coaches weren't the, the important factor, the crucial factor, and I don't think they are. But what's really important in these great teams with coaches is that they have a partnership with their captain. And I saw this over and over again. It wasn't a boss-employee kind of relationship. Bill Belichick and Tom Brady had this relationship that was unusual. It was like the relationship Tim Duncan had with Greg Popovich, too. It was very affectionate and there's a lot of, of love between them, but they knew how to fight and they would fight all the time. They would come into conflict about tactics. It was never personal. It was always about how the team was playing. You know, and Belichick would, would go to team meetings and rip Brady in front of everyone for mistakes that he made. And Brady would take it and it would tell everyone that no one's above the team. But, you know, if Tom Brady didn't like the Super Bowl playbook that he was given, he would tell him to rip it up and start over. So, that partnership, I think, was really underrated. And if you remember, that first season Tom Brady came, he was a six-round draft pick no one thought was uh, anything. And Bill Belichick was a guy who got fired at Cleveland that no one thought had the chops to be a head coach. And together, they became two of the legends of football. But I don't think you can separate them. I don't think it was something they could have achieved individually. I think that partnership and their ability to work together was so important. And I think the message for coaches and people, managers and people who are trying to assemble teams with this kind of leadership model is that 
you got to pick someone to lead that team that you can really partner with and that you respect and that you can uh, really treat as a peer. I think that's true. And there was a balance of power you wrote about and a mutual respect and that fighting wasn't a bad thing. And you equate the great captains and coaches to married couples. I was lucky to see a great marriage. My mom and dad would fight like cats and dogs and it was over right after the fight. And then I'd see them loving each other. And then when they disagreed, they'd go at it. And it was respect for each other. And they taught me how to fight which is a wonderful thing. People who can disagree and then carry on, you're giving them the greatest gift in the world. It's true. It's so underrated. And it's funny because especially in sports, there's this weird sense that conflict is bad. You know, there, there's, there are certain players, and the, and the thing about these captains was they were not easy to manage. I mean, they would push back on anything they didn't think was in the best interest of the team, whether it was something big or small. They would push back against the coaches, but they would push back against their teammates as well. They were willing to stand apart. And you talk about courage, and you know that's an underrated form of courage. It's the ability to just dissent from the group. And science has actually shown that, that there is a, an element of physical discomfort that comes with standing apart. So it's something that's not easy to do. And yet it's so crucial. You know, all the, the studies that have been done of team performance show that teams that really work together in, in close ways, as they do in sports, a certain level of conflict is essential. But there's a different kind of conflict. There's two kinds, really. There's a, a kind of conflict they call task conflict, which is really about an argument about process, about how the team is doing something or how they should do something. And there's another form of conflict, which is personal conflict. This is when the source of the conflict is really just, I don't like you. And there's a real difference. Now, all these captains, whenever they introduce conflict in their teams, they made a huge point to make clear that it wasn't personal. They never singled out individuals. They never blamed any one person. It was always about the collective, and it was always about the task and the process. And it's a huge difference. It's so easy to mistake those two things and look at someone who is – creating conflict uh, as a bad thing when you're not really necessarily looking at why they're doing it or how they're doing it. And that was one of the real secrets I feel like I uncovered, something I had no idea about until I really took a hard look at it. Sam, you wrote something fascinating about all of these captains, that they were more like jazz musicians than conductors, and that they freely improvised on and off the court to get the job done. It was one of the things that I had never considered when I think about teams, but there was a famous researcher named Richard Hackman, who was a Harvard psychologist who passed away a few years ago. He spent all of his career embedded with performance teams, teams that do things in real time, whether airplane cockpit crews or emergency room units or even symphony orchestras. And he would watch the way leadership worked. And what he discovered was so exactly parallel to what I found in these teams, which is that the leader's charisma and talent did not matter. It just wasn't a factor. They could have it. They could not have it. It didn't really make a difference. All that mattered, in fact, in terms of leadership inside a group is that every single important function of leadership gets done. That said, you know, anything that needs to be done in order to help the team from a leadership perspective, as long as someone does it, doesn't even have to be the leader. It could be somebody else. And on these great teams, what you saw was that these captains – had established themselves as the person who would do anything. If there's a burning building that no one else wants to go into, they're going to go into it. And once that's established, then basically everyone on the team, whether a superstar or a bench player, 
understands that they're free to do their jobs and focus on what they need to do. And if they want to contribute to leadership, they can. They can do it the ways they want to. They can do the things that they're good at, whether it's mentorship or you know, being the spark plug or being a sheriff or doing something else to help the team as a group. And you start to see this happening, this beautiful symphony that starts where everyone does what they're good at and everyone pitches in and every single function of leadership gets taken care of. And a great leader will never feel territorial, will never feel unhappy that someone is doing a leadership function because frankly, it's a hard job. Being a great leader, you know, and sustaining excellence is incredibly taxing and difficult. And anyone who's doing it the right way will be so happy to have help and assistance from others. Well, and this book will help others and assist them too. We've been talking to Sam Walker, the founding editor of the Wall Street Journal's sports section and author of The Captain Class, The Hidden Force That Creates the World's Greatest Teams. Pick it up on Amazon. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. And Sam, thanks so much for doing this. And by the way, go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. Sign up for our free newsletter, Five Best Stories Each Week. They come in audio form and in print form. And again, all you have to do is give us your email address. Go to ouramericannetwork.org. The Captain Class, Sam Walker's latest. This is Our American Stories.